the words to which I should like to call attention this evening are to be found in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans and reading again verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, it's important that we should uh, just uh, recapitulate briefly and remind ourselves of the point at which we had arrived at the end of the service three weeks ago when we last met together. We were then uh, concerned to show that the fact that we suffer in this world as Christians, far from being something that should raise a doubt or a query in our minds as to whether we are the children of God, is rather something that should give us a proof of the fact that we are the children of God. They prove that uh, we are united to him, and that as uh, he suffered in this world, so we suffer also. So when we find ourselves suffering as Christians, we should deduce from that the fact that we are Christian people. It is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I quoted numerous passages of scripture which prove and demonstrate that contention. But we also saw that the apostle uses our suffering of trials in a second way to prove that we are the children of God, and it's this, that the sufferings are a proof that we are being prepared for the glory to which we are being taken. And there again we were able to quote a number of scriptures which uh, teach perfectly clearly that uh, it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. That, I say, is the clear teaching of the scriptures. It's a great mystery, but there's no question about it at all, that suffering is one of the means used by God in order to prepare us for the glory that awaits us. So we translated the second part of this 17th verse like this. Since, since we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified together. We suffer in order that we may be prepared for that glory. Now this is, of course, uh, something that uh, throws great light upon the terrible, devastating power of sin, that it is necessary that suffering should have to be used in this way in order that we might be prepared for the glory. You would have thought that the mere positive uh, presentation of the truth would be enough in and of itself, but it isn't. Unfortunately, the sin that remains in us, in the body in particular, as we've seen, is so powerful, and the devil, our adversary, is so powerful, that it becomes necessary that we should be chastised in order that we may be rendered fit for the glory which God has 
awaiting us. Now that's the point at which we'd arrived. But therefore we have to emphasize this evening this most important fact that the ultimate end and object of salvation is our glorification. That's the point which the apostle is now going to work out. And of course, as always, he puts it in these terms. We shall be glorified together with him. Everything you see that happens to us is in Christ. And because we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We mustn't lose hold of this profound argument which the apostle has been working out indeed since the beginning of the fifth chapter of this great epistle. You remember how at the time I was at great pains to emphasize that here the apostle now introduces this great theme of certainty and of assurance and indeed of glorification. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's the thing. That is the thing that should always be uppermost in the minds of Christian people. Glorification is the ultimate end and goal of salvation. And we must never stop short of it. We must never think of our Christian position as merely one of being forgiven. We are, but that's the beginning of it. That's not the end. Even sanctification isn't the end. It's glorification. This great theme to which the apostle is now about to introduce us. Now I do want to remind you again that he hinted at it immediately there the moment he'd finished working out his argument about justification at the end of chapter 4. At once he introduces it in the second verse of chapter 5. And of course, uh, we shall uh, still have it at uh, greater length as we go on. The apostle never stops short of glorification. Take, for instance, what we shall find in the 30th verse of this chapter. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's the thing. That is the great thing. Now, what does this uh, glorification mean? What does he mean when he says that we shall be glorified together? Well, glorification means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit, body, mind, and spirit. The whole man will be completely and entirely delivered from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, polluting effect of sin. Not only that, we shall become like the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect men, glorified men. You see, the apostle is saying all that here, if so be that we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified together. He is already glorified we shall be glorified. And our glorification, like everything else that happens to us in the Christian life, is the result of our being joined to him. Very well, let me again remind you, therefore, 
of the crucial importance of chapter 5 of this epistle to the Romans. It's so much neglected. Do you remember how we saw that the apostle really introduces this great theme in the 10th verse, which we've read again tonight? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, the authorized version has, by his life. But we saw that it really should be translated, we shall be saved in his life. In his life. We are in Christ. We are in the life of Christ. So, the apostle then, you see, brings out this great doctrine of our union with Christ in chapter 5 from verse 12 to verse 21. Never forget that section. It's absolutely essential. We were in Adam, we are now in Christ. And all that he's working out in this eighth chapter is just the working out of that doctrine. We derive from Adam all the baneful effects of the fall. As by the sin of the one man, death came upon all, sin came upon all, and death through sin and all died. Because of our connection with Adam, we have reaped all these terrible consequences of his sinful act. But on the other side, grace is much more abounded. We are in Christ. And we receive all the benefits of these things which are true of him. Now, that, that's absolutely crucial, as you can see. That where sin abounded, grace hath much more abounded. And so, the apostle takes the trouble to work it out still further in chapter 6. This is all about our union with Christ. That, uh, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism, that like as Christ was raised, by the, was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, and on and on. Now, it's all concerned about our being united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, he's still dealing with it. And his point is that because we are in Christ and joined to him, we are children of God. And if we are suffering now with him and as he suffered, as children of God, we shall also be glorified together with him. Well, now then, it is, I say, very vital and essential that we should be clear about this great doctrine of glorification. That is the end of our salvation, and nothing short of that. God forbid that any of us should stop at forgiveness, I say, or look at salvation negatively merely as being saved from hell. I don't want to minimize the value of that. We'll never thank God enough for being delivered from death and hell and everlasting punishment. But you know that's according to the teaching of the scripture. It's the mere first step. It's the mere beginning. This is the thing, this glorification. So that the apostle now is concerned to tell us something about this. Now this is the way to approach it. God made men in his own image and likeness. That's what we are told in the book of Genesis. It's the teaching of the Bible everywhere. Man is made in the image of God, in the likeness of God. God said, let us make men in our own image. 
And therefore we must always realize that men at the beginning had a kind of glory about him. He was made the Lord of creation. He was over all the animal creation, indeed over the whole of creation. Everything was there for men. And men, having this image of God upon him, was the Lord of creation. Now all that suggests, you see, something of the glory that belongs to God himself. He gives something of this to men. Puts this special dignity upon him. Makes him like himself. Now, there is men as God made him. But unfortunately, men uh, sinned. He listened to the temptation of the devil. And he sinned and he fell. And the terrible effect of that fall was that men have lost this original position which he had. You remember how the apostle put that to us in the third chapter. In the 23rd verse, when he put it like this, he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we were never meant to be short of the glory of God. But we have, as the result of sin, come short of the glory of God. And that is the truth about men in sin. That is the truth about all of us born into this world. Man is not what he was meant to be. This is basic biblical teaching. Man has lost the glory that he originally had. This is something that he tends to show in every respect. It's the only real way of understanding men. It's the only way of understanding the world as it is tonight. This is the whole tragedy of men. This is the real problem of mankind. Man has still got the kind of memory and recollection of what he once was. And he is always trying to get it back, and he is always trying to persuade himself that he is getting it back. But he never does. Hence his frustration. Now, that's the, that's the key to the understanding of the whole of history. That's the explanation of all the effort of men with their minds and all their ingenuity. Man is always seeking this glory that he feels belongs to him, but he can never get it. He can't find it. Now, this is very interesting. You see, that's why man is so restless. That's why man is so unhappy. There is nothing more characteristic of sinful men than restlessness. You remember how Isaiah puts it? The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. But we see it in the world around and about us. What is this restlessness? Well, it's that nobody's satisfied. Everybody wants to be getting something else, to be advancing further. The world is full of ambition, rivalry, jealousy, pride. Why? Well, it's just this question of trying to be what we feel deep within us we were meant to be and we, were ought, and we ought to be. Now, our Lord, you remember, put this on one occasion very plainly and very clearly to the Jews who were so persistently arguing with him. He puts it like this. I'm going to read out of the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to John, verse 41 and following. He said, I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. 
How can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Now, the word honor there could be translated as glory. How can you believe which receive glory one of another and seek not the glory that cometh from God only? Now, there's a very perfect statement of it all. Man's always seeking glory. He always tries to be better than somebody else. He wants to be on the top. He wants to be praised. He wants to have honors. Everybody's seeking honors. That's the sinful world, isn't it? Craving for position. Always trying to climb. Always wanting to get to that top circle. It's the seeking for glory. And the explanation of it is that man has got this feeling within him that he's meant for it. And that he ought to have it. But that he hasn't got it. And so it makes him restless. And it accounts for so much of the trials and the troubles and the tribulations and the unhappiness of life. What a tragic creature fallen man is. He's a contradiction. He doesn't understand himself. He can't explain this restlessness, this feeling that he was meant for something better. He's no idea what it is due to. And that is why he so constantly believes that he can achieve it by himself. But he cannot. He's been trying throughout the centuries. He's never succeeded. There he is spiritually. Then look at him in his relationship to the world. He is not Lord of creation, is he? No, no. What's happened this week doesn't prove he's Lord of creation. Not a bit of it. He's only touching a little hem. The fact of the matter is that man is afraid of creation. And if you're not all afraid tonight, well, there's something wrong with you. These discoveries are terrifying. They're awful. Man, far from being the Lord of creation, is mastered by it. These things that he's discovering may prove to be his own destruction. He's not master. He finds out many things, yes, but that doesn't give him control. The thing is too vast, it's too big, and he's become the victim of the creation of which he was originally the Lord and the controller. Filled with fear, here again. It's a part of this glory that man has lost as the result of sin. And indeed, we can even see this and work it out in the matter of the human body. The body of men was not at the beginning what it is now. It didn't suffer from diseases. It didn't know pain. It wasn't a frail body. It wasn't what the apostle calls in Philippians 3.20 the body of our humiliation. Our bodies at best are very poor. There's an element of decay in them all. But they were not meant to be like this. This isn't true even of man's body. Even physically, man is a disgrace. He was never meant to be like that. There was a beauty, there was a form, there was a perfection, there was a kind of glory even about the very body of man. When man fell, he fell in every respect. And the glory is departed in every part of man. His spirit, his soul, his body, the whole man is no longer what he was meant to be. And it is only as we realize that that we can realize two things. The first is, as I say, the state and the condition of men today and the whole state and condition of the world. Men not understanding this. He's always bringing his schemes forward, always making his proposals, always confident and assured, believes he's about to arrive, suddenly everything crashes again. He's back where he was before or even further back. 
I've often reminded you of the truth, undoubtedly, in the history of mankind of this principle of cycles. There's no steady advance. It's a going up, then suddenly you're going down the other side. Everything goes round in cycles, civilizations especially. And it's all because of this very thing. Man's effort is due to his feeling that he's meant for glory. His failure is due to the fact that he hasn't got it. And that always, in spite of his striving and his seeking, it must inevitably end in failure. That is one of the things, then, which we learn about this. But let me bring out especially the second lesson which we learn from all this, which is, of course, that you really can only understand the Christian salvation truly as you grasp all that and as you realize the truth of all that. Because what is offered us here in Christ is nothing less than glorification. And of course, in the light of what I've just been saying, that is something which is absolutely essential. If men were merely forgiven, but left as he is, that would mean that the devil was victorious and that God had failed. Salvation is not salvation, unless at the very least it puts man back where he was before. There he is as God made him. The devil comes in, mars the work, destroys it. Now then, what is salvation? The restoration, the bringing back. So you see immediately that it cannot stop at any point short of this entire perfection. Not only with regard to the spirit, with regard to the soul also, and also with regard to the body. And that, as I've reminded you, is the meaning of this term glorification. Very well then, here is the theme that the apostle is introducing at this point. Man is going to be completely and entirely restored in the Lord Jesus Christ and as the result of his union with him. Now, here we have to emphasize an additional point, and that is that according to this teaching, man is not only restored to what he was in Adam, he is taken beyond that. The minimum I'm arguing is to be restored to the condition of Adam, but it is certainly not the maximum. Adam was not yet glorified. He was perfect as men, but he hadn't been glorified. There was room for development, and it is clear, it seems to me, that that was the ultimate that was intended for men. He was perfect as men. There was no blemish in him, there was no sin in him, there was no fault in him. But still, he was not glorified. He was in a state of innocence, but that is something which is short of glorification. But what is held before us and offered to us in Christ and promised us in him is nothing less than glorification. The thing to which men, if he'd continued to keep God's commandments, would have arrived and which would have been given to him as a reward for his obedience, is the thing that is now 
freely given to us in and through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So that I again quote the two lines out of the hymn of Isaac Watts, which for some remarkable reason are omitted from most of the hymn books. In him the tribes of Adam burst more blessings than their father lost. That is simply the truth. Not merely are we restored to where Adam was, we are taken beyond it to the place to which Adam would have arrived had he continued in a state of innocence and of obedience. Adam, you see, sinned and he failed and he therefore lost even what he already had. He couldn't get it back. The cherubim and the flaming sword were set at that eastern end of the Garden of Eden, prohibiting man's return. Man has been trying to get past that ever since. He can never do it. He's always trying to get the glory that he's lost and that which was beyond it. He can't do it. But here in Christ, this very thing that was impossible to Adam, impossible to the whole progeny of Adam ever since, is given to us freely as the gift of God. And so, as you think about glorification, you must think of it in that way, as men being not only delivered from all the effects and the results of the fall and the sin and the transgression of Adam and all that is involved in it, not only that, but taken beyond that and given something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now that's what the apostle is saying in these words at the end of chapter uh, at the end of verse 17 if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together Now we shall have opportunity of going into that in greater detail as we proceed with the consideration of this matter but let me sum up the argument to the end of verse 17 therefore in this way what is the position of men in Christ, therefore, at this present moment? Well, it's this. We are already delivered from the tyranny and the dominion of sin. We have died with Christ. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. We must be quite clear about that. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. We've been told in chapter 6, verse 11, Reckon yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. In spirit, we are already in Christ, safe. We've died with him, we've been buried with him, we've risen with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places at this very moment. There's no question about that. That is certain, that is absolutely sure. But still, you see, we are not glorified. We are saved, we are secure, but we are not yet glorified. What is our relationship to the glorification then? Well, it's this. We have glimpses of it. We have intimations of it. We are given the privilege of tasting something of its first fruits, 
We are given a foretaste of it. The apostle is going to develop that as we go on. But that's our position now. Not yet glorified, but knowing about it, seeing it afar off, being prepared for it. Now you remember in that great and glorious statement at the end of the third chapter of the second epistle to the Corinthians, in verse 18, the apostle puts it like this. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That is our present position. The glorification itself is yet to come. We are justified, we are being sanctified, we are going to be glorified. That's the way to look at it. And therefore we rejoice in hope of this glory of God. We know enough about it to look forward to it, to rejoice in it, to anticipate it. We don't understand it fully. We shall not even be given a full description of it here in this passage that is before us. However, the apostle tells us enough to know that it is something that really baffles description. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sin remains in the body, this mortal body of ours. And we've got to mortify the deeds of the body as we've been already reminded in verse 13 of this chapter. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. It's still here. It's still a fight. It's still a struggle. And the body itself is decaying and dying. This isn't glorification. No, no. This is the process of sanctification, preparatory to the entry into that state of eternal glorification. Very well. There is the present position of the Christian. What then is it the Apostle has proved as we arrive at the end of verse 17? Well, he's demonstrated this. That there are certain proofs of the fact that we are the children of God and that we are being prepared for that glory. And these were the proofs, you remember. Verse 14, the fact that we are being led by the Spirit of God. That is a proof that we are the sons of God. If you can give proof that you are being led and directed and guided by the Spirit of God, you can be certain that you're a child of God. Now, I'm not going over the proofs again. I gave you some ten of them. And I suggested that if you can say yes to any one of them, you can be sure that you're a child of God. Let me just give you one in passing. If you are deriving real enjoyment from what I've said even so far tonight, you can take it from me that you're a child of God. But if it all seems a kind of gibberish to you, well, you'd better examine yourself again very seriously and very carefully. I've already quoted it. First epistle of Peter, second chapter. Desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. That's the word that is addressed to children. And if you've got that desire, it's a proof that you're born again. The natural man hasn't got it. He sees nothing in it. It's all nonsense to him. He's not interested. 
if you really have a love for this word and want to know more about it, a desire for it, it is a proof that you're a child of God, that you're led by the Spirit. It is he alone that leads to this. Very well, there is the first proof. But the second, you remember, in verse 15 was this, that we've lost the spirit of bondage and that you have within you the spirit of adoption whereby you cry, Abba, Father. That's the second proof. If you've got that spirit within you, if there is something welling up within you crying out to God, Abba, Father, you must be a child of God. It's beyond dispute. But beyond that, we saw in verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Have you known the witness of the Spirit? If you have, you're certain that you're a child of God. The Spirit only witnesses that to the children. Now, I'm not saying, remember, that if you haven't got these things that you're not a Christian, you must have something of the leading of the Spirit. But you may not have the Spirit of adoption. You may never have known the testimony of the Spirit. You must seek that and go on until you get it. But if you've got it, it's an absolute proof that you're a child of God. And lastly, we have seen that he even brings in suffering. Since we suffer with him, if you are really suffering as a Christian, it is a proof that you are a Christian, that you are a child of God. The thing is inevitable. We must suffer if we are Christians. This is an absolute rule, as he did, so shall we. So if we are suffering because of our relationship to him and as Christians, it is an absolute proof of the relationship to him. Very well. There then is the apostle's argument in the little paragraph from verse 14 to the end of verse 17. Now, as we leave it, I must emphasize this point. Have you ever noticed, I wonder, those of you who have studied your Bibles carefully, that this apostle and indeed all the other apostles never mention glory without immediately mentioning at the same time suffering? Have you ever noticed that? It's a very odd juxtaposition, isn't it? The moment they begin to talk about this glory, they always go on to speak about suffering. Our Lord did it himself. You'll find it in the Gospel according to St. John in chapters 15 and 16. Read them, concentrate upon it. He taught it quite plainly. But not only that, as I say, we've already had it here in chapter 5. Did you notice it this evening? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Immediately, you see, brings in this question of suffering. He can't mention glory without immediately being made to think of this element of suffering. Here it is again in this 8th chapter. And you'll find it in other places in the Apostles' teaching. Take it as you get it in the 2nd uh, Epistle to the Corinthians again, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Suffering and glory, glory and suffering, always the same. You, you go on to the fifth chapter of that second epistle to the Corinthians, and you'll find he goes on. We know that our, if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's the glory. 
In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked, for in this tabernacle we do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Glory and suffering, they're always put together. And indeed you'll find the same thing in the epistle to the Colossians. If you look at that first chapter there, let me read to you verses 24 to 27. The apostle says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And then he goes on to talk about the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Sufferings and glory brought together once more. And then finally you get it in the second epistle to Timothy, in the second chapter and verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now this is a remarkable thing, isn't it? And yet, this has been one of the greatest stumbling blocks to Christian people and to believers throughout the centuries, in spite of this plain and clear teaching. Everybody still, still seems to think that the moment you become a Christian, you never have any more troubles or trials at all. And if they do get them, oh, they say, I thought that I was never going to have trouble any longer, that bodily illnesses would all be cured and disappear, problems would vanish, and everything would be absolutely perfect, in spite of this teaching. It's always been a stumbling block. And that is why, no doubt, we always, in the teaching of the New Testament, get these two things mentioned together. Whenever they talk about the glory, they immediately talk about the suffering, in order that innocent, unenlightened Christian people might be put right on this terrible matter, and therefore might never become such easy prey to the devil and all his wiles, and all his subtlety. Well now, that's exactly what the apostle is going to do here. Here it is, he says, because you're suffering with him, you're going to be glorified with him. It is in order that you may be glorified that you are suffering. And then he seems to say, is anybody troubled about this? Is anybody unhappy about this suffering? Is anybody failing to understand this suffering? Very well, says the apostle, I'll tell you about it. So at the beginning of verse 18, he really takes up this subject of suffering in the light of the glory that is to come. Now here we really are starting with what is a new section, a new paragraph. It starts at the beginning of verse 18 and goes on to the end of verse 25. Those of you who had our original classification of this, the material of this chapter will remember that we indicated that from verse 18 to verse 25 you've got a special paragraph. We finished with the particular matter of sonship, which was dealt with in the paragraph from 14 to 17. But here now there is this new paragraph. The connection with the previous one is quite clear. Have you noticed the apostle's method? Are you fascinated by it? You see, people get into ecstasies as they analyze a Beethoven symphony or something like that, the different movements, 
They said, you see how he does it? He sometimes introduces all his themes at the beginning. And then he takes up theme number one, first movement. And then just as he is finishing that, he'll throw out a hint of what's going to come. And then he'll finish movement one and he'll start movement two. But he's already given a hint of it at the end of movement one. That's exactly what the apostle is doing here. You see, he's been working at this great idea of sonship. And sonship leads to glorification. Yes, but he chose to put it in that way. If so be that we suffer with him, that we shall also be glorified together. Then that's the introduction of the theme of this next paragraph. The theme of suffering. Glorification in the light of suffering. I confess that to me this is something very wonderful. As you see this perfect architecture, as it were, as you see the design, as you see the great scheme being unfolded, he's going on, he's working something out. Now, this section is therefore not to be regarded as a digression. He is not merely turning aside to deal with the problem of suffering. He is doing that. And he is doing that because he is a, was a pastor. And because he had a pastoral heart. The apostle was not a lecturer. He was always a preacher. And he was always a pastor. He always preached. He couldn't just leave the question of glorification and suffering at that. No, no. He, he wants to help these people. So he goes out in an explanation. It's partly that. But it isn't only that. In doing that, he takes us on to a wonderful conception. And that is... He shows us that our glorification is going to be, is nothing but a part and is going to be a part of a still bigger glorification in which the whole cosmos will be glorified. Now he hasn't touched that so far, but here he's going to deal with it. And as he does that, you see, he will be providing us with yet another proof of the absolute certainty and assurance of our individual salvation. If he can prove to us that it is God's purpose that the whole universe is going to be glorified in Christ and as the result of his work, well then all of us who belong to him are going to share in it. That's the very thing he does. So in this paragraph, at one and the same time, we are given a further proof of the absolute certainty and assurance and finality of our ultimate, complete and entire deliverance and glorification. But at the same time, we are given an understanding as to the nature of our Christian life in this world, and especially in the light of the suffering that we are inevitably caused to endure because we are the children of God. Now then, that is the great theme that is facing us as we look at this new paragraph beginning at verse 18 and which goes on to verse 25. But remember, it goes on beyond that. It is indeed the theme right away through to the very end of the chapter at the end of verse 39. It's a most glorious vista that is opening out before us. He wants us all to be sure and to be absolutely certain that our glorification is coming. He wants us to look forward to it with thrill, with ecstasy. He wants us to be able to answer every argument that the devil will hurl at us 
You look at your suffering. Can you be a child of God? Is this what God's doing? He gives us the answer. Makes us doubly certain and assured. And as I say, it is essential for our well-being as Christians, for our happiness as Christians, and above all, for our testimony as Christians in the world as it is today, to have a clear understanding of this teaching concerning the association of present suffering and future glory together with Christ. Very well, we leave it at that this evening, and God willing, we are now in a position to enter into the consideration of this great theme at the beginning of verse 18. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we would once more thank Thee for this amazing thing that Thou hast done for us in the Son of Thy love. O God, we feel we are such poor and frail and ignorant and weak creatures. We are ashamed of ourselves in Thy presence, O Lord, not only because we know that Thou hast purposed all this and art certainly going to bring it to pass, but Thou hast even expounded it to us. It is here before our eyes, in thy word, in thy book. Oh, God, forgive us. If any of us are depressed or unhappy, weighed down or borne down, Lord, our God, open our eyes. By thy Spirit, give us the understanding of this precious truth, we humbly beseech thee. Oh, Lord, grant that we all may be rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. We pray thee, therefore, to bless us one by one as we study thy word, separately and alone in our homes or with others somewhere else. O Lord, open our eyes. Give us the anointing of the Holy One, this blessed unction. Give us, O Lord, the understanding. Give us the power to concentrate. Grant that we may so see these things that we shall be taken up by them and filled with a sense of anticipation of this glory that is awaiting us, together with him. O oh Lord, receive our praise, our thanksgiving, our worship, and our adoration for so great a salvation. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us now this night, Throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be glorified together with him. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.